If you are not participating in our Bible reading challenge for the year, I really want to encourage you to do so. Um, if you have any questions regarding it, you can ask myself, you can ask Tina, you can ask Kristen. But uh, the Bible reading challenge, I think, will be a leave a tremendous mark on your life. You will not be, cannot be the same at the end of 2023 if, in fact, you participate in the Bible reading challenge. Somebody says, but I, I don't think I'll be able to keep up. That does not matter because all you do is if you're a day behind, two days behind, one week behind, you jump right back in there where, you, uh, where we are at. So you don't have to do any makeup reading. You just jump right back in. And uh, we've been reading through the book of Genesis, and we're reading how God, um, in His providence, started really Israel, His people. He called Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac, I, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, one of them being Joseph, remember. And these became, these 12 sons had families, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And from there came Jesus. Now, as we read through this, I want to let you know that you might not be aware of this, but in the world, one of the main reasons atheists laugh at Christianity and at even, even at uh, uh, Jew Jewish people is because of this portion of Scripture right here. Right here where Abraham hears from God after he got this son of his, Isaac, and he, was wa he waited very, very long to have Isaac, as you know, uh, because he decided to lean upon the arm of the flesh and he had a son with, with uh, another woman. And that was where Ishmael came from, the Arab nations spring from there. But here, later on, God actually blesses them, him and Sarah, with a son named Isaac, the promised son. And I want to remind you as to how this started in verse 1. It says, And these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Watch this. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Your only son, Isaac. Yes. Your only son, Isaac. So keep in mind that from God's perspective, he had one son, Isaac. But some people read the Bible, and they really hate it with a passion, especially when it comes to a part like this where God, the loving God, asks a man like Abraham to actually go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. Atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens are two who absolutely hate Christianity and their hatred for Christianity is justified, they say, by this very portion that we are reading today. Then there are those who love the Word of God, who love the Bible, and they don't just love parts of it, they love every part of it, including this part. So one of the, uh, you know, one of the parts of the Bible that we totally disagree upon is right here. And as we read through it this week, 
I thought this is a wonderful opportunity for us to clarify some things regarding this portion of Scripture. So what I have for you is I have two short videos, very bad quality, but I would like for you to listen to first to Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins on Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Thank you. You can stop it there. Thank you. So because of the story uh, of Abraham being willing to kill his son to prove that he trusts God, many conclude that the Bible is therefore an embarrassment, an embarrassment to the modern man and a complete affront to humanism and to humanity. And so um, the next person I want to show you is Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens' famous response to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Thank you. The second uh, thing I live for is um, if not exactly passing on my genes, taking part in activities that might allow those genes to pass on. And not, <coughs> and, uh, not scorning the, the three delightful children who are everything to me and who are in every chance of making a glimpse of second life, let alone an immortal one. And I'll tell you something. If I was told to sacrifice that would prove my devotion to God, and I was told to do what all monotheists are told to do, I would admire the man who said, yes, I'll drop my kid to share my love with God. I would say, Thank you. So Christopher Hitchens, in essence, if you are a Bible believer, he says, because of the story of Abraham sacrificing his own son Isaac, you no longer have the right to participate in the conversation of ethics, morality, or any other sort. So they basically dismiss you and your views of ethics and morality because of this portion of Scripture right here. So my question this morning that we want to deal with is, so uh, what do we make of this? What do we make of the fact that God looks like He is cruel, that God is um, not just a bully, but that um, He's actually, in fact, guilty of murder? So how would we respond to this accusation that God is immoral, unloving, child-abusing, bully? Again, everything boils down to hermeneutics, truthfully, the science of interpreting Scripture. And um, that's why, uh, to me, it's become an increasingly important subject because uh, schisms happen when people read Scriptures 
not in a normal way, in the natural way, but they read scriptures in their way. They impose upon scriptures their feelings that they have toward God. And uh, so we read the Bible in one way while they read the Bible in another way. We with understanding, them without any understanding. In Genesis chapter 2, chapter 22, it should be read the way the whole Bible is read. The foundational misunderstanding is that this unfolding story is in fact a testimony to the coming Christ. It is in fact a foreshadowing of what was going to happen. God, in His foreknowledge and in His wisdom, planned it all out. It's called providence. So that we could have an example of what was going to be fulfilled. And that way we know that when it was being fulfilled, we could see that it was in fact the authentic substitution for our sins. You see, when we see it in this way, the entirety of Scripture comes into focus. I want to read to you 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 16. It says, But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, even to this day, when Moses is read like he just did, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The only people who can understand the Old Testament are the people who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ. And when the veil of the Old Testament is removed, we will see that the theme of the Old Testament is nothing else but the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Everything in the Old Testament reveals Christ to you and I. The Pharisees couldn't grasp the meaning of the significance of Scriptures because they did not receive nor did they know Christ. And the key to the Old Testament is, in fact, the New Testament. If there was no New Testament, we wouldn't understand the Old Testament. And that is why people like Saul before he became Paul, that is why Saul had a zeal for God without knowledge of who God truly was. That's why, let me do this, let me do this. Is my hair okay? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I'm going to have to let the wife do this. Yeah, are you kidding me? No, okay, well, I've got five people in the audience going like. <laughs> no, from here it was like sticking straight up. What's so so fix okay. it, wifey. Yeah, it's good. Yeah? All right, good. Let's start again. Like. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, i got to have somebody fixing it for me. Thank you. <laughs> no, I figured I could see it. nobody's looking me in the eyes everybody's like looking right <laughs> all right so what do we have here we have proof in 2nd Corinthians 3 14 and 15 and 16 that unless you are in Christ you read the Old Testament with a veil over your mind you read the Old Testament and you don't really understand what it is saying 
That is why to, to this day you will have people in Islam who read the Old Testament with a veil. You have people in Judaism who read the Old Testament, but it's veiled. They don't really see it for what it says because the meaning to it, the meaning of it is hidden to them because they're not in Christ. I will prove it to you again. Read it. It says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Testament is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ it is taken away. Only in Christ that veil is taken away. Only in Christ is that veil gone. Verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. When Richard Dawkins reads the Old Testament, he reads it with a veil over his heart and mind. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You see, the key to the Old Testament is, in fact, the New Testament. Jesus declared that the Old Testament revealed Him, but they cannot see Him when they read it. They stumble over what God in His providence did with the story of Abraham and Isaac. John 5 verse 46 says this, If you believe Moses, Jesus speaking, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote about me. Who wrote Genesis 22? Moses. Who was he writing about? Jesus. When you read Genesis 22 and through the rest of the Bible with us in our Bible reading challenge, please keep in mind everything that the Scripture says is in fact a revelation of Jesus Christ from Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way through to the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's the name of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And moreover, we are to read the Old Testament with Christ in view, with our, and secondly, with our spiritual growth as a result. Look at Romans 15 verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. When Moses wrote Genesis chapter 22, Richard Dawkins, it was for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of these scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, when we're reading Genesis chapter 22 about Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice his son, it is for our instruction, instructing us in what? In affirming with us who the Christ is going to be and what he's going to do for us. And it is for our encouragement so that we may have hope. Think about those old saints. What kind of hope did they have? Well, they had hope in this promise that we just read in Genesis chapter 22. Picture for a moment with me baby Isaac laying in the hands of Abraham, in Abraham's arms. What do you have? Well, you have the hope of the world. The hope of the world. Why is Isaac the hope of the world? Follow me for a second. No Isaac would result in no Israel. No Israel will result in no Christ. And no Christ results in no salvation. 
So consider connecting a few dots with me here. Here is Isaac. And for those of you that don't know the story, of course, Isaac was born 13, 14 years after Ishmael was born. Isaac was the chosen son. Why? Not because he came from Abraham, because he came from Abraham and Sarah. Isn't it amazing how God actually refused to choose any woman? <laughs> he refused to choose any man. He chose Abraham, and he chose Abraham and Sarah. Had to come from Sarah. And here's Isaac. He grows older. He's a young man. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Take him up the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him. Abraham actually gets up early in the morning to go and do that. He takes wood. He puts it on his son's back with a donkey, two servants, tells the servants, to wait at the foot of the mountain, and him and the boy climb this mountain. They're going up this mountain to go and sacrifice his son. He puts together an altar, and then he ties his son on this altar. And as he's about to plunge that knife into his son's chest, the angel stops him and says, Stop, Abraham. God has now provided for you a ram in the thicket. He looks around and there's a ram, a substitute. When you hear Jehovah Jireh, my provider, this scripture is not referring to you having enough money <laughs> to pay your electric bill or to afford the next week's eggs. That is not what Jehovah Jireh means. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't provide, but when it says Jehovah Jireh, my provider, is actually referring to that moment right there, that God provided for us a substitute. He provided for us a lamb, the perfect lamb of God. And so, when you consider the story, I want you to connect a few dots with me. Here is Isaac. Who is he? The promised son. His only son. What is he doing? What is Isaac doing? He's doing his father's will, not his own. How is he doing his father's will? By walking up a mountain with wood on his back. Which mountain is he walking up? Mount Moriah. The exact place where the future Temple Mount in Jerusalem will one day be built. Golgotha. The exact mountain. What is he on his way to, what is he, uh, on his way to do? He's on his way to become a sacrifice. Now, evidently, what these men don't understand, referring to Hawkins and Hitchens, Evidently, this is how God has planned to save the world. By having the promised son, the only son, sacrificed on the wood, he carried up the mountain to where Jerusalem will one day be. 
Think about this. On the third day, it says, on the third day of their journey, Isaac is placed on the wood he carried up the mountain. And while Isaac was laying on the altar to become the sacrifice, on the third day, he's laying on this wood, ready to become the sacrifice. God stopped Abraham and showed him a ram. A ram provided for him to be a substitute sacrifice. That means on the third day, Isaac was delivered from death. So the whole episode concludes here. In Genesis 22, verse 11 and 14, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Now Abraham has the knife in his hand, ready to plunge into his son's chest. He says, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns, excuse me. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it shall, future tense, be provided. There is no doubt Isaac is an absolute prototype of Christ. And God in His providence and His foreknowledge, thousands of years before Jesus caused this whole storyline to play out exactly the way it was going to happen. And it's for our knowing. It's, for, it's to teach us, to help us understand what He did for us in Christ. Now, if Isaac is a type of Jesus, then certainly Rebekah, his wife, is a type of the church, the bride of Christ. I want to remind you how this happened. This marriage took place when Abraham was getting older and he asked his servant to go to a very specific group of people and find for his son Isaac a wife. Well, this man went, this servant went to this very specific group of people and he came to the water, uh, to, to the well where people usually come for water at the end of the day and he said to God, God, help me identify the right woman. Let her water me, give me water, and give my camels water. He actually asked God for that to be the case. And in his providence, God's providence, here walks, up walks Rebecca. He asks her, can I have some water? She says, well, let me water you. Give you water and let me water your camels. That was, a, that was a big job. He goes home with her to meet her parents. And the rest is history. But I wanted to point out, because I think it's important to realize, that it actually it was God who helped the servant identify who this bride is to be. 
You see, the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah does not begin with a couple falling in love. That's not how it happened. No, it begins with a father's choice of a bride for his beloved son. Genesis 24, 3 and 4 says, I want you to swear by the Lord. This is Abraham speaking to the servant. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. So we realize that this marriage did not begin with two people falling in love, but it started with the father's choice of a bride for his beloved son. The second thing we realize is that the, the chosen bride was identified to the servant according to the providence of God. I want to read it to you in Genesis 24, 43. It says, see, I'm standing beside the spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels also, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with a jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Prayer answered. Bride identified the providence of God. Not only did this start, this marriage start with the father's choice of bride, of a bride for his beloved son, or God's providence of identifying who she is. After the father's servant identified the chosen bride, a very high price was paid for her. Genesis 24, verse 53. Then the servant brought out gold and silver, jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. A high price was paid for her. So, we find the last thing I want to mention to you here is that she left all her family to undertake a long pilgrimage, a long journey to come to her betrothed in a land she would share with him as an inheritance. She had to leave behind her world we at Christ Nation hope you found this message meaningful. Please feel free her. to share it with anyone that you think needs to hear it. Genesis we hope you can join us soon Rebecca for a Sunday experience. For more information, please visit www.christnation.tv. Thank you and God bless you. What a beautiful story. A God is so absolutely involved to the last detail in order to create the story so we could understand who Christ is to us and who we are to Him. In the very same way, you are Christ's bride. Your betrothal began with a sovereign choice of God the Father to be a bride for His beloved Son. I love how in Acts the Bible says, while the apostles were preaching the gospel, it says, and... All those who were appointed unto eternal life did what? Believed. And I like to ask, 
all those who were appointed unto eternal life, those who were appointed unto eternal life, they believed. The question I have is, who appointed these people to eternal life? The Father. Well, second question, when did He appoint them to eternal life? Before the foundations of the world. It's clear the Bible says so. And what I'm saying to you today is your betrothal, family of God, began with the sovereign choice of God, the Father, to be a bride for His beloved Son. When? Before the foundations of the world. And once you were chosen, a great price was paid for your particular redemption. Just like a very high price was paid for Rebecca, so a very high price is paid for you and was paid at the cross. And you, like Rebecca, were called to leave everything behind in order to go through this pilgrimage this pilgrimage of this life all the way to your future wedding. Your wedding that you will one day celebrate in the promised country. And when the world, even educated people like Hitchens and Hawkins, when they look at Scripture, they see foolishness. As a matter of fact, it, it, it breeds hatred inside of them. They're not reading the Scriptures in an attempt to understand it. They're reading the Scriptures in an attempt to find a way to disqualify it. Have you ever had somebody listen to you, not to understand you, but to criticize you? <laughs> right? That's why I say to people oftentimes, like, you know, counseling is easy. You see, I can answer your questions, but not your criticisms. You see, you can't answer somebody's, uh, somebody's criticism of you if they have a critical spirit. But if they're a question, that can be answered. So these highly intelligent men, they look at scriptures and they find it foolishness. It enrages, enrages them. However, when the chosen bride, the chosen bride looks into the Scriptures. She's affirmed in God's choice of her. She looks into the Scriptures. She's humbled by the price that was paid for her. When she looks into the Scriptures, she's inspired to leave everything behind and to be prepared for her great wedding. She's eager to be sanctified because her sanctification is her preparation for that great day. She has something to live for. She has someone to live for. And that is you. Did you get something out of the Word? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that You are not a stumbling block to us. Jesus, you said, blessed is he who is not offended in me. You're the cornerstone over which many stumble. But today, 
We thank you, Father, that you have lifted the veil off our minds, off our eyes, and off our hearts, that when we look to your word, we see Christ everywhere. We see your goodness everywhere. We see your plan of salvation detailed in every detail. And I thank you, Lord, that as we see it, as we walk through your word, and we see you everywhere, that we will be encouraged because of who you are and because of who we are to you. In Jesus' name, amen.